was a long ass intro. God. And welcome to another edition of Killing Mother Bird and Cam. This is your boy Bird, and as always with me, Cam. Cam, how are we doing, my love? Oh my gosh. Well, let's start from the beginning. I got a new tattoo. Ah. I got my jelly back just in time for my jelly to still be broken, so that's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in a oh, fucking. Did you find, did you back find a fucking sh- It's back in the shop because it? it's. Somebody screwed something up, so it's overheating now. Mm. And I broke a nail to figure it out, so. That's, that's a female problem. See, I wouldn't know. I couldn't relate. Yeah. Pissed. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what the second or third attempt of doing this, and because of technical issues and life and all everything in between, we've been trying lots of wine, lots of wine. Oh yeah, and see, I, I, I'm a teetotaler now until I get back to St. Louis and Springfield. But yeah, um, guys, we are so gracious that you guys are listening to wherever you're listening to, whether it's SoundCloud, whether it's iTunes, whether it's Stitcher, uh, and we're going to put it on to everywhere, wherever you listen to podcasts. But again, thank you so much. Um, Don't forget, we also have a Facebook page We now. do. We have a Facebook page and K-Pod. So far, we'll figure out. Hopefully, we can figure out the name later. Mm-hmm. And we also have a website. Yes. Yes. So we got a Wix. The f- and we've been working on that one too. So that will be on majority of that our pages on. for you guys yes. to go to. And all of this is going to be leading up to the one year anniversary show, which is June twelfth, two thousand and nineteen. I'm thinking we're probably going to do like Facebook Live or Instagram Live or. Like, can Instagram do live? I didn't even know they could. Yeah, oh, yes, I think they can. can do live, yeah. And, I always get um, those two mixed up. Yeah, but again, guys, thank you so much. Uh, without further ado, we do have a barn burner for you tonight, and we're going to be covering the Cheshire murders of 2007. And when this came out, well, when this occurred, this was, this grabbed national headlines for obviously all the wrong, horrible reasons, but we will take a deep dive on the background on that. And the police response, community response, public outrage, what have you not. But, yeah, I, I remember that when this happened, when I was, say, okay, I think it was in high school. And yeah, we were, let's see, 2010 is when we graduated. This is probably when we were sophomores. Yeah. sophomores. And it's just like one of those things that, you know, it stops you in your tracks. And when you see kind of like the, the gruesome details that occurred it really it, it puts a knot in your throat and hell you know when i was looking back during you know reading the research and doing the research it oh man it's just back so random yet so calculated and in this time, day and age you wouldn't expect this to happen especially to a family that lives in a nice neighborhood and you know are well off it's just it's terrifying. It makes you want to lock your doors and look at people twice. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we do the damn thing, uh, can you hit the good folks up with a disclaimer? Yes. Hello, everybody. We're really excited for you guys to be back. Well, at, we're really excited to be back. Exactly. But anyways, uh, per our normal disclaimer, um, again, we're here just to report and do our jobs. We get majority of our notes and information from various document sources, newspaper articles, um, and online sources. So if there's anything that to you is incorrect, 
um, out of whack, you know, offensive on either side of the spectrum, let us know. You can let us know uh, on our Facebook page, KPod, on our, act- oh, I'm sorry, on our actual account page, KPod, our Facebook page, Killinois with Bird and Cam, um, or even on Instagram, Killinois with Bird and Cam. We're pretty quick at responding. Um, and two, uh, especially with the gruesomeness of this crime, we do advise, um, you know, adult ears, please be 18 or older to be listening to this. And if you are ever in a situation, um, please call your, you know, local hot, uh, crisis hotline, um, for help. So yeah, let's do this shit. All right. And, um, we were last episode, if you guys recall, we were covering the Browns Chicken Massacre, and now we're going to go right back road tripping this motherfucker, and we're going to the East Coast, to Connecticut, and this story will be taking place in Cheshire, Connecticut, uh, to be exact, and known as the bedding community to the locals. Many residents call Cheshire a phenomenal town, and we're going to be discussing the picture-perfect all-American family, the Pettits, Jennifer, William, Haley, and Michaela. And the timeline starts late afternoon, early evening of July 22nd, 2007. Jennifer, Which is my birthday. Uh-huh. So that means you would have turned 15. Yes, that's that's getting my driver's permit, bitch. Oh, man. No, 16. <laughs> what is it? See, I've never Six- driven a day in my life, so I, how would I fucking know? 16 is, what was it? 16 is the life. 15? 15, no, no, 15 is when we got our permit. 16, oh. they just turned, changed it in Illinois for us that, like, you're supposed to have your permit, like, when you're 16 for, like, six months or something. Mm. Riley already had hers for six months when she turned 16, so well, she I got, got an F on my permit. So. And I had to wait till, like, October or something. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So, some weird new law passed you that you had to wait, like, a certain amount of time. After you turned 16, but that was also 12 years ago, so I don't know where it's Mm. at now. Do you remember what you did on your 15th birthday? Let's see. Probably was partying. Oh, boy. I'm a summer baby, so. Mm. Yeah. I shit, I can't remember what I did on my 15th birthday. Fuck. But anyway, Jennifer Hawk petted and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela, went grocery shopping like any other summer day. And both Jennifer and Michaela were picking up food for Jennifer's pre-birthday meal that Michaela planned to prepare. But unbeknownst to the pettits, the entire time, they were being followed to the store. And we will attach a link of the actual store footage of both Jennifer and Michaela just 12 hours before everything goes haywire. Now, once at the checkout, the video footage notes that Joshua Komaskerdetsky, did I do it right? There you go. Yeah. Oh. yeah. That was pretty close. Yeah, I'm going to fuck this one up. <laughs> There's more of an accent to it, but we will do it. We will suffice. All right. Uh, Joshua Komaskerdetsky <laughs> seemed to be interested in these two and followed them home. And once Joshua noted that the Pettit family was well off and lived in a beautiful home, he knew he needed to target this location. And the reason why the Pettit family was well off was because of the breadwinner and the man of the house, William. Because not only was Jennifer a dedicated worker and mother, but William Pettit was a hardworking doctor who worked from sunup to sundown to provide for his family. So within minutes of noticing Jennifer and Michaela, Joshua actually followed these two all the way back to their home. 
And again, after realizing that these two lived well off, Joshua knew what he wanted to do and was in contact with his partner, Stephen Hayes. And they were in contact on a possible prospect to potentially burglarize. So over the next couple hours, Stephen Hayes would text Joshua stating, I'm chomping at a uh, bite to get I need an arcade soon. Are we still soon? And to me, those are pretty much prime examples of premeditated murder. They're actually talking about this before it goes down. However, um, this is where it gets a little foggy because were they planning on this from the beginning or mm. was this this murder from the beginning or was it just a plan to burglarize? Yeah, and I think and, that's something, my bad to cut you off, I think that is something like I do want to kind of like circle back around as we get into the nitty gritty and then we talk on that because I mean, you can, uh, one can probably be a devil's advocate and say, Hey, you know, they could have been talking about anything. It's so, it's so, I don't want to say surface level, but it's so, uh, ambiguous, you know? Exactly. But they didn't show, um, and most of these notes I got were from the documentary that was watched, but, um, it, it, it seemed pretty adamant that something was going to go down and it just seemed almost kind of spooky that these words were being spoken of before, you know, anything was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, but then again, you know, if you look at these guys track records, there's not a lot of, I guess you could say violence more as a lot of burglaries, burglaries, burglaries. Um, but we'll kind of, kind of go into details with Hayes and Comer Sergeski. Um, just because we do talk about their home life, which kind of points fingers to the way they acted. Um, but anyways, the uh, way these two actually met where they were both living in halfway homes and, you know, recovering from alcohol, drug abuse. Um, and like I was saying earlier, they do have lengthy records with burglarizing. So why not aim big and big? We mean the Pettit family. And again, the way these two supposedly met, it was a really, really odd, morbid coincidence. And it starts with Stephen Hayes, who, after experiencing bouts of depression and anxiety, ended up locking himself into his bathroom and binging for days on heroin and crack, hoping to commit suicide. And after a failed attempt, Steve decided to go for a drive and somehow ended up in an AA meeting where he would meet Joshua Komaskarjetsky. And realizing that they had a lot of similarities, both Steve and Josh hit it off. And then fast forward to July 22nd, Joshua's mother noted that Josh was leaving the house wearing all dark items. And it would later come out that the only time Joshua wore similar dark clothes was when he was planning on burglarizing a house. So this leads us to the early hours of July 23rd, less than 10 hours after Joshua and Stephen said that they were back to the Pettit house. And But this time they were inside and these men quickly found William Pettit sleeping on the couch. And without hesitation, Comus Garjeski took a baseball bat that they found in the yard and started striking William on the head. And they quickly tied him up in a gunpoint and left him in the basement of their home and then check on him for hours. And see, this is the first prime example of violence, too. So it's almost like they came in the house expecting to 
see him there and expected to hurt him. Um, which, anyways, uh, during this time that William Pettit was trapped in the basement, it was said that Jennifer and her children, Michaela and Haley, were bound and locked in their rooms. Hayes and Comer Sergeski didn't really claim they didn't plan on killing anyone, which was odd due to the brutality and vicious attack they just did on William. Um, so that kind of confuses me on their, their case of, oh, this wasn't planned, this wasn't premeditated. But the first action we did when we broke in was to beat someone. So to me, that was pretty clear that they're violent. Right. Um, but according to testimonies, before leaving the house, they concluded they were not satisfied with their haul and ended up searching more of the house. And what they did find was a bank book that showed the available balance of the Pettit's banking account. However, the bank didn't open until nine. So during this time, there's a gas station surveillance that actually shows Hayes arriving and purchasing about $10 worth of gas and filled up a couple gas tanks that he stole from the Pettit family. Now, to me, it's pretty hard to continue to assume that these two weren't planning on killing someone or lighting up a place. Um, there's proof of them at the crime scene. Now, again, it wasn't really confirmed whether this was always the original plan or if their plan changed when they realized uh, that they didn't have a big enough haul and they saw the bank book. Um, but I, for some reason, had the feeling this was planned all along. So... Once returning to the Pettit house, Jennifer was actually forced to go to the bank. And while at the bank, Jennifer was told to withdraw $15,000 from her account. Now, while Jennifer was informing of the money she needs withdrawn, she slipped a note to the bank tellers informing them that she was a hostage and her family was also ho as hostage. Hostages. There we go. Singular, not plural, pal. Um... Uh, to call the and she asked the bank teller to call the police immediately. The bank manager, or not teller, but the bank manager quickly called the police at 9:21 p.m. and gave details about the situation. And the manager was able to describe in great detail what the culprit looked like and what the concern was. And we're going to play an actual audio of this 911 call. Um, this was lifted from the Cheshire Murders uh, documentary on HBO. And if you haven't checked it out, we strongly advise you. And that's where we picked, again, picked up this audio. So, and we don't own the rights to this audio. Yes, we all, just all, rights, all rights go to HBO. That's if you still have subscription and shit after Game of Thrones. Exactly. So, <laughs> if yeah. you still have subscription. Here's the 911 audio of... Uh, So, as you can hear from the audio clip, the bank manager 
I don't know how clear and how detailed you can be when telling the police, like, hey, you have a hostage situation fixing to happen that is already in progress, I should say. And we're going to, you know, kind of analyze a little more on the police response as we get along to the story. Now I'm getting ahead and I see Cam just shaking her head because I know she's going to I had an edge. I wasn't shaking my head. I was agreeing. Oh, okay. No, I'm just shaking her head. This is like, as in the police. So I knew it. Like, oh, I just... Like, I I guess watching it, I, you know, I understand both sides because, you know, it is a hostage situation, so you have to follow, you know, steps, but then at the same time, there were a lot of, um, they took their time following these steps, so it's, it's, it's very confusing. Yeah, yeah, and what was very fascinating, you know, and listening to that audio footage, but it really doesn't go into detail, is about how nice that the culprits were reportedly uh, were. And it's mentioned in various news articles that Jennifer stated that these interview uh, individuals were quote unquote being nice, and she believed that they just wanted money and weren't going to harm her family. And witnesses would later come out and recall that the bank manager running into her office and Jennifer just walking out of the bank. They didn't go into detail whether or not there was enough time to stall Jennifer or even understand the magnitude of what was going on before she left. But if this was the case, then you kind of understand a little bit of why it's being viewed and that some police officers seem to be lackadaisical about, you know, a hostage situation. And also, it probably didn't help that this has never happened in Cheshire before. Now, in today's world, the situation would be very, you know, be taken very serious due to the amount of violence and social media. And the next thing you have, mass shootings everywhere. Um... You have bombings, all bombings. You, know. you have all the stuff with police involved shooting. So you would have law enforcement better equipped to train in those kind of situations in 2019 as opposed to 2007. But that said, this murder would become uh, these murders as it you know would formulate would become a very controversial issue that would go nationwide because not only the heinous crime that occurred but the way law enforcement reacted in that uh existence but yeah so after that phone call and once jennifer and again that phone call happened at 9 21 so it's very important to note that time um because by the time she's back at this household this is, I guess, when Commissar Jetski and Hayes decide to become violent. Um, not when he almost killed William, but now. So Commissar Jetski proceeds to, I guess, sexually assault Michaela, who's only 11. However, it is known that Joshua actually has a fascination with younger women. Um, he's a fucking pedophile with a criminal history. So bottom line is he should not have been with someone, been someone who was able to walk so freely. Um, and he, he later admits to performing various disgusting things that he did to Michaela, um, that involved oral sex and ejaculating on her stomach while sodomizing her. Now, if this isn't disgusting enough, Commissar Jeski photographed this entire assault on his phone and then forced, quote unquote, forced Hayes to rape Jennifer. And it sickens me speaking about this, and it, it sickens me to th- this day that these two scumbags aren't dead. And it wasn't, and this whole spiel didn't really start to get out of hand 
um, until Joshua noticed William was gone from the basement. And that's when they started to freak out. And that's when this, uh, their crimes got really violent. Um, witness stated that William Pettit never claimed to never smell gas or fire, but did hear a soft voice of a woman begging. Now it's not detailed too much on what William was doing during the time they were gone, but between their arrival back in the attack on Michaela and Jennifer, William Pettit was able to escape through a basement door, bleeding from his head, bound to a pole. He was able to hop upstairs and get out the door. Now, he states that he was able to escape outside, and he did note movements in the trees. And there is this controversial um, thought that there are actually police officers on the scene assessing the situation. Acid and so, happening? Sorry, I was drunk. Oh, boy. <laughs> assessing, um, assessing the yeah, situation. Yeah, you were right the first time. But Jesus like, Christ. the fact that they're there... And, and that's what yeah confuses me because if you look at the documentary, you know some some of the police officers say they the first ones arrived when the the house was ablaze, but then there's other people that say off the record, police officers say they were there the whole time assessing the situation. And, and I mean, when you hear, and that's the thing, is something that we're probably armchair quoting backing. If you hear something that hey. Me and my family are in a hostage situation. Shouldn't that be, even if it's a false, shouldn't that be the red flag for, hey, not only just get the Cheshire, you know, police department, but get the Connecticut State Police, get SWAT, get, you know, people who are fucking, again, and I know we, 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 we talked about a few minutes earlier about 2019 as opposed to 2007, but even then, you know, this is yeah. still a post, you know, 9-11 world. It's just, if if this was a city, say, in probably a big urban area, I don't know, like Detroit, uh, New York, uh, <laughs> Chicago, you have something like that, SWAT is there just like that. Even in, in and I don't know but if it's, it's, you know, again, I don't know the protocol to when it is a hostage situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they assume that oh, we have time to, to talk them down. We have time to, right. you know, talk to them or to let them know we're here or what. But I just I just feel like there was a step missed in mm -hmm. just saving them. I guess it's circumventing again. Like, it's just, how many times have we seen in small town murders, like when we see a documentary on investigation discovery or unsolved mysteries or whatever, when you have, they'll, they'll interview some uh, a representative from law enforcement and they say, oh, this is the first murder we didn't had in five, seven years. And, like, you just aren't used to that level of crimes being, you know, perpetrated. And seven years is being nice, too. I'm pretty sure Cheshire hasn't had this ever happen to them. Oh. So this is what makes it even crazier. Nobody knows. Everyone knows how to, you know, went to the police academy. They know the steps, but they've never experienced it before. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just very. It's just, it's weird because everybody goes through the same police academy 
yet not everybody understands the multitude of how quickly a situation can change. I guess that's the words I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So getting back onto um, the Pettits, as everything is happening, William Pettit fled the basement, and this was obviously noticed by Koma Skarjewski. And at this time, it is said that Koma Skarjewski busted into the room where Hayes was located to inform him what occurred about William Pettit. And without a second thought, Hayes strangled Jennifer and doused her lifeless body in gasoline along with parts of the house. And this included both daughters' bedrooms and daughters who were tied to their beds. And these daughters were covered in pillowcases doused in gasoline, Cam. If you can just... Oh, if you can just even try to fathom that how do you even think of that like how is that a quote-unquote non-premeditated thought process i yeah i just don't understand and once the fire was started the culprits fled the scene with the petted family car but thankfully the two were immediately spotted and stopped by the police and the only way they were stopped was a collision with a squad car and this ended around 10 a.m. And many praise the police and the quick effectiveness they had on the situation, believe it or not. But others, as including us, thought otherwise. And there was easily, get this cam, a 30-minute period where no one seemed to know what was going on. And it is said that the first police officer to arrive on the scene claimed they heard a girl screaming in the fire. However... It was said, it also said that there were police officers already there assessing the area before the fire started. So this is just, as you know, you were saying earlier, it's just very, very, like... Confusing. Yes. Yes. There's, there's, there's a couple lines, I guess, that might be missing. In a, in a critical life or death situation, you need law enforcement to get on their shit. And yeah. when you have a 30 minute like gap and you're fucking at the fucking house, you already got a heads up with the 911 call. I just don't. And I, again, maybe they got the call the at 921. Yeah. Cause like maybe and this is for, for, for argument's sake, maybe it's the witnesses, you know, the, the, how everything was so calm. Of course you're going to be fucking calm. <laughs> if a guy is, Ushering you in and saying, oh, if you don't get to someone to fucking kill you, of course you have oh, to, you have to be calm in that, you know, in and that the environment. fact, too, that it was such a large withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then again, you know, I don't know, you know, how well off they are where they make withdrawals like this commonly, mm-hmm. but it, I find it an odd withdrawal at 9 a.m. in the morning with that, and I just... It could have happened quicker. They could have, I guess, come quicker. Yeah. And so, after all of this craziness that, um, crap, hold on a second. (laughs) Um, So, once these two were actually apprehended by the police, both Hayes and Commissar Jeske smelled... Oh, that's how you say it. I'm telling you I was going to fuck it up. (laughs) Um, They both smelled strongly of gasoline. And, of course, as soon as they were apprehended, they began to blame uh, one another for the murders, along with including William uh, Pettit as an accomplice, which is a, a interesting...
interesting theory. Which yeah, this we'll, is your lead. We'll discuss. Yeah, this is my my interesting theory, which we'll we'll talk about later on um, at the end of this. But it was later discovered um, that Cumber Sergeski had a diary where he wrote religiously, and he actually stated it that Pettit was a coward and could have stopped all of this if he wanted to. And again, like we were saying, there are, are some out there that state that William was actually accomplice to the tenuous crime. Now, I don't know if it's one of those um, conspiracy theories or not, but again, we will discuss this. Um, but to this day, William Pettit continues to fight for his future and the future his family never got to experience politically. Um, he actually hasn't gone back to his practice since this murder. Um, but what, where it gets confusing is statistically it is known there's a very small percentage of random acts of violence uh, against individuals you do not know, such as what occurred at this household. Um, although there is a sense of uh, where you want to believe this was a random act of violence, then the conspiracy, the conspiracy theorist inside of you says otherwise. And so from what was gathered, you know, he was left while the rest of the, you know, William Pettit was left while the rest of the family suffered. And I just found it weird that nobody bothered to check up on him until the end. And, I found it weird too that you know this everybody pictured this family as the picture perfect, the picture perfect family. Like we all know, everything is a rainbow and butterflies. What if there was something happening behind closed doors? You know that wasn't really talked about. Um, he wasn't really investigated. Um, mm. It's I find it fascinating that there really wasn't an actual investigation into him. Um, he seemed to prove that he wasn't at fault but due to this crime and the severity of it i just i find it amazing for them to come up with this crazy crime in 12 hours yeah you know and, and almost pull it off in 12 hmm. hours and this is my thing i think when you have i i guess it's a a a perfect uh cocktail of just problems when you have they're under the influence mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol they have criminal backgrounds, and then you add the element of you have a you have women and her two uh, daughters, and you have one of the perpetrators who is a pedophile. I just think you just you add all of those, you know, and you, and you combine them. I just think it was just the the perfect rep, recipe for you know to to have everything come out the way it did. And, you know, with William Pettit, it's what did he have to gain? Now, if he had, if he had took out a life insurance, you know, policy uh, on his wife, like, say, six months beforehand or like, you know, somewhere in that kind of time frame or if there were any, you know, any issues, you know, with the family. You know, again, that's something, okay, you know, appearances, you know, you can say, you can just say face and it's like, oh my God, to everybody else, this is a, a picture perfect family, but we don't know what's going on inside. And unfortunately, he's the the only one, you know, uh-huh. alive who can paint that narrative. So again, we don't, I mean, the means, the motive, eh, I, you know, who, who knows? Maybe. And it's interesting because I, I I think I want to think it was a random act of violence, but then mm-hmm. that itty bitty thought is like, but maybe 
Right. And I mean, again, if they were, when they were apprehended and they were in the interrogation room and they just, without a moment's notice, they quickly pinned it on the other. And it was just no, no culpability, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's, it very, it's, like you said, like very fascinating, you know, to go to that angle and say, hey, maybe there is something more to this theory that is not just a harebrained idea. Yeah, that it wasn't just a random act of violence or, you know, it was planned by, you know, it was long time planned, but mm-hmm. I do see where, you know, that's false. Yeah. <laughs> that's conspiracy theories false. But what we're going to actually do now is pretty much break down, you know, the victims, the perpetrators, um, kind of go through the whole, um, you know, police involvement and just kind of, kind of give you guys our, our two cents on everything. Mm-hmm. That's what we have been doing so far. But like, yeah, this is really kind of just break all the shit down. But before we do that, let's just kind of give a little more, I guess, perspective and background on the victims. I mean, we've been talking enough as it is on the perpetrators and we shouldn't give, you know, these motherfuckers that more, much more, I guess, latitude or not even latitude, but just... I guess attention, the time, time of day. Yeah. So yeah. that said, let's talk more about the victims. Now, Jennifer Hawk Pettit was very involved in school activities and was well regarded, well liked by many of her, you know, her peers. And upon graduating high school, she would go to college for nursing, and she later became a co-director of the health center at Cheshire Academy, a private border school. She met William when she was a third-year medical student and a new nurse. And Jennifer, as we said earlier, was a mother of two beautiful daughters, Haley and Michaela. And Jennifer was later diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And that uh, that kind of hits home because, again, my, I don't know what I said again, but my mother has MS. And, you know, as and she's had it for well before I was born. So I know how debilitating that disease is. And you know how stressful it is on a family. So I, I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, that's just very, very, very tough. And despite that, the diagnosis did not damper Jennifer's attitude or her pride. But again, she only was forty-eight years old when she was brutally murdered. Now, Haley, 17, was the eldest daughter born on October 15, 1989. She had recently graduated from Miss Porter's school and was to attend Darfmore College in the fall. And Haley was an advocate for multiple sclerosis, especially after finding out that her daughter was, her mother was diagnosed. And Haley was very active in the MS community. And she believed if she did not act on this diagnosis, her mother would die. That's just a very morbid... That's- an unbelievable amount of pressure and mm-hmm. thought on a 17 year old and yeah. Haley took it with the, with stride mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Haley would actually raise over $50,000 for being a spokesperson for the MS society and many kids in school had no idea about this and Haley usually kept to herself about situations like this which you know uh, again it's just not something that you really especially a situation like this. And I don't know if it's one of those things that you want to uh, look for pity or also, you know, I'm very private, especially just drawing from personal experience. 
And, you know, this is someone who, you know, helped take care of my mother every day, especially since I, um, you know, finished, came back from Springfield. It's, you know, it's a part of everyday life. And it's it, it, it's very difficult to describe, you know, dealing with MS and also knowing like it's a hereditary disease. So it can get passed down from generation. And it's always something in the back of my mind of like, oh, my God. Maybe I can, you know, get MS and hey, who knows if that was something that especially Haley, especially she was some someone well versed into this, you know, maybe that's something it's yeah. Very and that's tough. what you know, that's for being her age and to be thinking, you know, not about herself, you know, at our teenage years, especially when we turn sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, you know. We want to be independent. We want to be away from our family. You know, we want to do our own thing. But they were able to always to say, you know, the whole Pettit family were always able to stay close-knitted and, you know, be there for one another. And for Haley to do this just shows how phenomenal, of, um, you know, a daughter she was. And um, just like Haley, you know, they had Michaela, too, who was the youngest of the two daughters, and at only 11 years old, she attended Chase Collegiate School. Although she was, you know, not as social as Haley, she, she tended to shy away from adults. Um, she did always know when to assist someone in need when they needed help. Um, and then finally, the sole survivor of this family, William Pettit. Um, he was an endocrinologist for Cheshire. And uh, endocrinologist is a you know, branch of biology and medicine dealing with the endocrine system. It's diseases and specific secretions known as hormones. Um, so he was able to survive this entire incident by escaping through the direct external exit from the basement. Um, he was actually beat multiple times over the head with the baseball bat. There was no signs of him um, being uh, really anywhere, hit anywhere else except, you know, the and dents in his head. Um, and, and quickly after all this, he became an activist for the death penalty. Um, for uh, Since this, like I stated earlier, he really didn't return back to his medical practice. He stated his desire was to be active in the foundations that were set up for his deceased family. And he's begun now working in the political field to ensure something like this will never happen again. And, you know, uh, just to piggyback on uh, death penalty, that's something that we'll talk about further as the as the investigation and subsequent trial gets underway. Um, yeah, but it, 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 it's, I guess to go back a few minutes earlier, when we were talking about your theory, um, you raised some great points during the research, and I do want to kind of devote a little more time on it um you made uh, there was 11 11 uh details that you brought out and it's i'm not i'm still i'm still sticking to my guns and i think that this was a random act but that said i'm it could be a little bit credence, more smoke to the fire. Like I said, that, that harebrained scheme that, okay, maybe that's a little more. What if the police investigated more? It makes you wonder. It makes you wonder. But that said, he was the sole survivor. He was able to escape. 
And I mean, obviously, you shouldn't be ruled as a, uh, a suspect because of those things. What are you supposed to do, you know? Uh, but it didn't seem like he was ever checked on. Uh, he was not killed. And did the perpetrators knew that he was dead? Or was he alive and knocked out? Um, the idea of Joshua stating that he was a part of this, um, whether he's doing it to save his own ass, or maybe he's like, who knows? And no, again, as you said earlier, Cam, no extra investigation was ever, uh, devoted to William. Now they're thinking, okay, this is an open and shut case. And they don't want to, you know, they're yeah. probably getting a lot of uh, blowback from the press, not just locally, not just state-wise, but nationally. What's to say they make this huge fucking blunder? We're not insinuating that they're covering up, but it's it, it, it leaves a lot to the imagination. And how you said earlier, how was this all planned and everything within 12 hours? That's my main question mm -hmm. is, and how did these two plan this entire heist and crime and pull it off, or almost pull it off within 12 hours? Mm -hmm. And also, like, how did no one ever smell smoke but heard voices? So that one is a very, very tricky one, like... And that confuses me with, again, everybody, this has to do with the... Um, the Cheshire Murders, the documentary, um, it's the, the timeline they try to explain um, all's, all kind of falls within the same, again, the same hour, the same half an hour. So, you know, these are all back-to-back -back incidents. So he jumped out, the place was on fire, everything happened so quickly. So it's just kind of... You know, I don't, he was beat over the head a hundred times. He probably, you know, didn't have his senses exactly. But, um, over that, um, I do, you know, agree that, you know, this was probably more of a random attack than it was, um, a planned one. But, um, it is always a thought that, you know, that goes through my head. That's like, okay, well, for this to happen, you know, by the book, you know, this shows that this could include something else. Um, but we are actually going to go into the perpetrators. And I know we don't really want to give these little lives the time of day to speak their names, but I do want to break down the case again for everyone. So Stephen Hayes, <coughs> excuse me. Stephen Hayes was actually uh, born in 1963, and he's convicted on 16 counts of um, capital punishment and murder. He was sentenced to death on six counts of capital felony. Unfortunately, this ended up turning into a life sentence due to the change in laws in Connecticut in 2015. Um, he had one daughter, and actually in the Cheshire murders, his daughter does actually um, have a uh, couple things to say with her interview there they do interview her she's actually a police officer so it's kind of uh interesting to see you know that Stephen Hayes is who he is while his daughter is um and the complete she, opposite wasn't she part of the police force yeah she's part of the police force she just graduated when this happened mm. 
like of the Cheshire Police Department? What? Of the Cheshire Police Department? I don't think it was Cheshire. I don't know. I think they lived outside of Cheshire. Mm. (laughs) I don't remember which one it was for, but, you know, she just had as many questions as, you know, why, what happened, you know, what's going on, I need to know, and... Um, which is funny because she views, you know, like many of us, our fathers as, you know, doesn't matter what he does wrong. You know, I still love him. He's still my hero, but we will also put up some audios of Stephen Hayes's family members and his brothers and what they had to go through growing up with him. And they give you multiple of examples of why this is something Stephen Hayes would do to somebody, um, why he was always kind of a bad egg. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll, I'll put up those audios too when we um, uh, post this as well. Um, but anyways, Hayes did have a lengthy record, and it started at the age of 16. Um, and you'll hear in the audio with his brothers that they talk about him just – you know, beating up his brothers, being rude to his brothers, making them cry, giving them broken ribs, things of that nature. Um, during this time of Hayes being sentenced, there was a trial of seven women and five men. The jury decided to sentence Hayes to death. Um, they actually said that the attorney stated that Hayes smiled upon hearing the jury's recommendation of the death sentence. He continued that Hayes was thrilled and very happy with the verdict because that's exactly what Hayes wanted all along. Well, at least give the devil its due towards that. And even though we know where it's going to end, it's like, well, you know, I want to face up. He he is the devil. Yeah, but on December 2nd, 2010, shortly before being uh, convicted of six death penalties, uh, Hayes apologized for the pain and suffering he caused to the Pettit family and said, quote, death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring peace and comfort to those I have hurt so much. Um, Hayes ne- attempted multiple times to negotiate a life sentence with a plea bargain, so um, I don't know if <laughs> that kind of contradicts that shit <laughs> he just said. So, I don't know. I don't know. But this would be the first time in Connecticut history that post-traumatic stress uh, assistance would be uh, given to jurors who had served for two months on this triple murder. Think about this. If we're, you know, if we're we're just doing these notes, right? And we've mm-hmm. been recording for about 47 minutes. And I mean, to that pales in stark, stark comparison, comparison, I should say, when you're going every day Two months, and you're seeing you're seeing uh, the crime scene photos, and you're seeing the video of this depraved sex act, and you're seeing the fire, and you're seeing all of these details. That's going to fuck with with anyone, you know. It's just very. uh, I can't. I can never be in those shoes, and this is from somebody. This coming from somebody that uh, that covered a murder trial, and again, not getting ahead when we do a future episode. Um, we're going to have a you know very special guest who covered a trial, covered an investigation, covered a kidnapping, I should say, 
And, you know, I can sense that, and this is a very seasoned journalist, even I can sense that, you know, it, it has to affect somebody. It has to affect that person, you know? To, to be in a juror's box, to go through that every day, yeah, it, it just, oh. But again, as fast forward to five years, as uh, Cam elaborated earlier, the death sentence was overturned and vacated to life sentence. So as it stands as of this day, he is currently serving out a life sentence in jail. And I just don't think... You know, I'm a, again, I'm very, you know, mixed on the death penalty. But As when you are literally convicted of capital murder, mm-hmm. you deserve the capital punishment. Right, right. And again, it was just going back to a couple episodes that we did a death penalty and going on, James Bird, that you can find on the archives on Killinois, uh, wherever the hell you find podcasts. But yeah, it, it just... I, I, I find it fascinating where we're going to, we're finding cases that that have these commonalities and in, in in terms of labeling out punishment and okay does this man deserve the death penalty and yeah in this in, yeah, in this case I think he does in this case double fuck yeah and That's I don't Stephen think Hayes you and know. Joshua Komaskarjewski oh fuck yeah. I, I think they both deserve it, and I understand Stephen Hayes' depressed, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenic, whatever he has. I get that. But you didn't you didn't take the steps you could have taken to avoid that. You took the mm-hmm. complete opposite steps and took someone else's, not one person's life, three other people's lives because right. you weren't getting your way, and mm-hmm. that's... And again, it could be argued with the text messages and okay, what was the real meaning? But let's just, again, let's say let's say that it was. That's a clear point, as you said earlier in the show, of premeditated murder. So this isn't one of those. At least in my, uh, in my, from my perspective, from my dollar's worth, it's not one of those deals where, okay, this was supposed to be one thing and then it just completely got out of hand. And it just became this whole nother beast. But you yeah, went see, to great what... lengths to cover it up. And very poorly, I might add, because you got caught in the family car smelling of gasoline. And that house is completely up in flames. So they didn't think far out as into where, okay, I'm going to get, you know, how we get away with this. But they tried to plead it. Yeah. And two, it's like, okay, you guys are in a halfway house. Which means you guys have to be on probation, mm-hmm. which means you guys are going out of your way to commit a crime that you know if you get caught, you're going back to jail. And you did it anyways. Yeah. It's and then and then and then some. And you know, I, I see that, you know, this is another thought that, you know, Stephen Hayes grew up in the system and probably didn't have a good childhood and lifestyle, but he literally became an example of what, like, of what the system does to you. Because mm. <laughs> he's been in jail so many times. Right. But um, let's talk a little bit about um, Joshua Komarsarjewski. Kom- now, I know um, this name is pretty common, or not pretty common. What? It's, it's 
a well-known name. Okay, man. okay. I was just like, yeah, if it's common. How the fuck have I been butchering it for the if last hour? If you're a hour? Polak or a Russian, oh. it might be uh, more common. But uh, oh. anyway, so he was actually um, put up for adoption by a 16-year-old mother and a 20-year-old dad. So the Komosorjewski last name is actually um, his adopted last name. And the name Komosorjewski is very popular throughout Europe. So... Many people probably know Theodore Komosorjewski, who was um, a Russian and later British theatrical director and designer. He started in Moscow, but had uh, his greatest influence in London. And he's actually noted for groundbreaking productions of plays uh, Chekhov and Shakespeare. On top of this, Komosorjewski wrote several books and was well known throughout Europe. Um, Also a director of architect and costume design. Along with that, you have Vera uh, Komosorjewski, who is an actress for the Russian stage. So the name was very well known. Um, However, upon realizing what had occurred, the majority of the Komosorjewski family um, pretty much confirmed this is not how they handle life or business and went into detail that Joshua was not actually blood related, but adopted. Um, And when viewing the documentary, The Cheshire Murders, the Komosorjewski family actually responded to the attacks um, on their name, along with the extended family. And if you guys watch this video, the way the, uh, Joshua's actual parents responded to this time, um, they posted a letter outside their front door, which um, I do not have the letter, but I will be posting it as well. Um, and it was probably two paragraphs, and it was um, pretty much talking about how they're sorry about this horrible crime. Mm-hmm. So, um, for his part, Commissar, oh, I just, I thought I was going to get it. I thought I was going to get it. I was like, Cam, okay, Cam, <laughs> he said it at least 10 times. I was like, okay, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. Commissar Jetsky, for his part, said multiple times that he did not intend on killing anyone. He said, quote unquote, I will never find peace within. My life will be continuation of the hurt I caused. The clock is not ticking. And I owe a debt that I cannot repay. And he will go on to say that forgiveness was not his to have. And he needs to forgive his worst enemy himself. Now, like Stephen Hayes, by 2015, his death sentence was vacated to life in prison. And, um, hmm. I mean, a lot to unpack. These, like the same with Stephen Hayes, Coma Skarjewski uh, appears to show remorse for the actions that he did. And, I mean, what would you make of that? I just find that they're... They have... I mean, Commissar Jeske, I feel like, has been in trouble since he was a young boy. Again, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, him being adopted and having mm-hmm. some resentment or that, but... um. From the beginning, he's been a trouble kid and has been fascinated with things that um, normally would lead to um, people questioning, you know, your sanity and stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Hayes has always been a troublemaker, um, but I also kind of feel like he's always kind of been covered, you know, like. Oh, I got in trouble, but somebody covered, like, mom said, mom, mom covered for me, it's fine. And Joshua Komersovsky, I just think, is a predator and needs to be locked up. I don't know much about Hayes, but 
think that's what we need to Yeah, I, just, I think it's just really unfortunate where, okay, if um, you, you have a situation where it's the, you got the death penalty and you're thinking, okay, justice is going to, we're going to have this, this kind of measure of justice being carried out. And then just like that, okay, they're not going to face the ultimate atonement for their actions. Yeah. And while, okay, you can have assurance that, okay, at least they're going to be in, in jail for the rest of their lives, that, okay, they're going to at least live out years. It's not going to get taken away, like, unfortunately, what Haley and Michaela and Jennifer... They still get to wake up every day and breathe and eat and think about what they did. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, again, it goes without saying, it's just like, not only the, per- I mean, this all wouldn't happen if the fucking, you know, these fucking mar- monsters, you know, have the forewithal, the wherewithal, I should say, to go through this, but. Yes, they're, they're one, that's a perfect way to describe them, are monsters. It goes without saying that the police involvement, again, took a lot of, a lot of flack. And they had their supporters, as we said, immediately from the onset. A lot of people think that they did everything in their power to ensure the safety of these victims. Um, It was said that police officers followed all proper protocol and steps to subdue the perpetrators. However, a lot of individuals, including William Pettit, as we, you know, we've made our observations known um, didn't think the police did not do their job. It's kind of ironic that William Pettit says this with, okay, a lot of people think that some of the reasons why they would hamper on it is the fact that he didn't get investigated. So I find that very interesting. But... I find it pretty interesting that... I mean, the whole case is fascinating, Mm -hmm. and I, I think what I find most fascinating is... What, what was going through your head the whole time? Like, did you think you were going to get away with it? Like, did you did you really think you guys were going to get by? Like, win this? Like, like did you guys think you were going to get caught at all? Or right. that, that's what blows my mind. Is like, how do you think you could have gotten away with this? Mm-hmm. I, I just think I think at the end of the day, uh, Jennifer, uh, Michaela, and Haley would probably more likely would have been alive and they could have if the mm-hmm. police had took it more seriously when they were at when jennifer was at the bank or at least en route home and exactly again, and it's a, that's where it confuses me is you know did they did they you know was this the time when you could do like a whole search for some a specific car or you know, I know things change over time where, like, you can't file an Amber Alert after so many hours or specific things or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of... And again, you know, we're almost... We want to wrap it up in a bit, and there's a lot of... We got a lot of information on, like, um, hostage protocol and, and, and what have you, and they follow whatever the fuck they call protocol. But that's just, that said... What happened to those 30 minutes that are unaccounted for, where there's a, this the fucking gap? I mean, that, it's just... Nobody's talking about that. Nobody has talked about that. 
it's just, I, I wouldn't say just a, a comedy of errors, but with, I mean, tragic consequences. It, I just don't, the, the police don't look good coming out of this. No, they, at the and end of the don't day. get me wrong, I'm glad that, you know, they were able to stop yeah. them, literally with their vehicle, but in that process. This could have been avoided to the magnitude yeah. that it ended up being. It could have been a lot. It, you know, I, Jennifer, I unfortunately, you know, if they were able to stop the vehicle on the way home, you know, again, I don't know if they thought, oh, you know, they could be armed, they could be this, they could be that, but the vehicle wasn't stopped, Jennifer was installed, the police, the, the quote-unquote police officer claimed they heard the girl screaming, but if you look at how big the fire was upon, quote-unquote, coming to the fire, that thing had to burn for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A, a titty bit, at least. Right. So, there you have it, and I mean, we're almost, at, we're an hour into this right now, and um, we'll, we'll leave it there, like, it's, it's the Cheshire murders of 2007, and I mean, this is a very, very exhaustive, uh, just very confusing. sad case, confusing, sad. yeah, it's just very, you know, we have cases where, we're gonna have cases where everything is um, black and white, and then you have gray in terms of motive and why. But for the most part, you're going to have, especially the cases that are solved, and that was, you know, within moments. But you have a case like this, and it's baffling in a lot of ways, and why um, these victims were sought after. Uh, like, do you think that, like, I, I just... You know, I'm glad. Do you think that since they had the perpetrators then and there, that's how they ended, and they didn't like do any detail into it because they got them? I just it, it, it it's a it's a it's a mixture of that, and when you don't have a when you don't have a, a crime like this uh, that has happened in years, or as you said, maybe this is the first time it's ever happened. Uh, I mean. Are you? Tr I'm not saying you're trying to think outside the box and say, "Hey, this more than meets the eye here," but maybe they thought, "Okay, it's just so much evidence and it's so much leading to them that we're not going to consider everything else." And they might say, hey, "They're going to say as a last ditch effort, oh, the father did it, William did it." Yeah, yeah. And now that you like, now that we break it down, like I don't think William was involved whatsoever in mm -hmm. that. But for you them to know. use that as know. a last-ditch effort, after knowingly being guilty, is kind of just a yeah. bullshit if, if, if And that's the thing I say, you never know. Because, again, who knows? Since they, they left that out there, and there's um, some some thoughts to it. and some. Uh, but, but, but that said, if that is... Like you said, and I'm thinking it's leaning toward a last-ditch effort. That's just pretty fucking low. It just... It... It, it makes me... And especially, you know, whole that you would be these type of fucking animals. But they are. And... Mm -hmm. You know, women gotta protect other women. And it just, you know... Everybody's got to look out for one another, and we. It just makes me so mad that these animals 
yeah, destroyed when, this family. Yeah, it, 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 it gets just so fucking sad. And I mean, going back, the, the bank manager did everything she could. I mean, didn't even waste time. You'd think right there they would have got it, and they didn't. You have that 30 minutes. It just leaves a lot just... Uh, this makes me really uncomfortable. really does. And don't want to go any more further on it, but, like, yeah. And that's the Cheshire Murders. And thank you guys so much. Um, this is... Uh, we're about an hour and some change into this. Um, we will be back oh, very fucking soon. Um, we have a few cases on the docket, as if we're fucking, uh, fucking lawyers and shit, and judges, but we have a few, you know, intriguing episodes, and, uh, one is unsolved, we're gonna actually do a recording after this, but it's almost midnight as we're talking as of, you know, right now, and this is gonna go back, we're gonna be back in Illinois, we're gonna be back in Chicago for this one, and... This is a unsolved murder that has been open or closed or cold, I should say, for the last 56 years. And it's the last political hit in Chicago. And oh, yeah, that's a dun 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 for that. Ass, oh my lord. But we also have our one year anniversary episode of what we're getting ahead of that. But before that, we're going to be covering something that's been in the news and we're going to be road tripping again. We are going to be covering um, the J.B. Kloss uh, kidnapping um, and that whole ordeal was as crazy as it's, uh, oh man, it was the last several months, seven, eight months, I, I believe. And I mean, it just had a lot of. You know, it evoked a lot of memories of the whole Elizabeth Smart situation. Yeah. And um, we're going to have a uh, very special guest, um, an old colleague of mine who actually worked on the beat with this story and, um, you know, reached out to her and said, hey, you know, we'd really love to have you on. She's a very, very, very busy person. And. She's like, yeah, sure, you know, I'll, I'll be able to, to, to come out. And, you know, it, it's going to be really good to not only just cover that case, but to get it from a perspective of, you know, somebody who knows this, like, the back of her head. And not only the, I guess, the uh, the facts of the case, but, like, what she's going through and what, you know, how she's interpreting things as it's going, well, not, you know, trying to get in trouble or anything, but, like, it just, a case like that is very, it sticks with a person for a long time after the fact, so that's something I really do want to pick uh, our special guest's brain with, but, um, yeah, we have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of exciting um, stories to kind of unwind and leading up to the one year anniversary June 12th 2019 which happens to be another anniversary June 12th 1994 and we probably said it on episodes past but google what happened on June 12th 1994 and you'll kind of get the gist of what we're going to be I don't think they did a bop 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 for that one that's just let's just say the juice is loose he is now, but like, yeah. He is now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did that shit. But it goes without saying. Um, Guys, thank you so much. Uh, Without you guys listening, 
Um, none of this is possible. It's the only reason we're... Well, I mean, you know, you have a great co-host who sticks with you for hours and don't even get born. I mean, that always helps. But it, it, you guys cannot convey how much your support means. And, you know, continue to grow with us. We got a lot to improve. You know, we got a lot of work to do, uh, what have you. But, again, guys, thank you so much. You guys are the real fucking MVP. Um, you can find Cam on social media through Cam E. Ren, as a period after the E, on Facebook. You can find her on IG on Instacam630. And you can find her on the Twitter with I Like Stuff 630. The Twitter, we can start with the Twitter for Birdman. You can find him on Birdman for America. And then you can find him on Instagram, the gram of Cam. Um, Bird underscore your underscore enthusiasm. Now, if you can't find that, his, his, his picture is him in a um, WWE mask. So you'll be able to find him there. Ray Mysterio. And then, <laughs> then you can find him on the Book of Face under Alex Camp. And he looks like he's from the 1900s. Yeah, I just, I'm George Washington. You're Alex Washington. I don't fucking know. No. <laughs> I was trying to be funny, but I was like, hmm, that didn't sound too good. Yeah, that was just like, that's just one of those jokes that you have to tell me off screen, and then I'm going to give you the pass, and like, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh -huh. well, oh, hey, that, we can Look, I've, I've learned how to edit with audacity, so yeah, we're not, I'm not, uh, not going to get my, my uh, pal in trouble. <laughs> yes. Yes. yes, 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 keyword. Yeah, but guys, thank you so much. And you can find us on our group page, Killinois with Bird and Cam. You can find us on our Facebook burner account, KPod. And Which our... certainly. Yeah, she's like, what's a burner account? But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> like a burner phone? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. The caucasity. But don't of all. ask like people do for burner phones. Yeah, huh? He said it said it better than I could ever do it. And you can find it, and we will have, I promise you, we will have our website up and running before the one-year anniversary, and it's going to be, oh, my God, how the fuck they pull this off? But, yes, we're going to have all those things for you. Um, this is episode 35 of Killinois with Bird and Cam. It could be episode 36. I'm just fucking tired right now. But it's 35. I'm, like... I'll bet I'll bet the student loans on it's thirty five. But again, guys, thank you so much. We will be back very very soon for the next installment of Killinois with Bird and Cam. For Cam, this is Bird signing off. Uh, be there. Be there or be killed, bitches. That's right. <laughs>